Good evening. Welcome to the Just Sleep Podcast. I'm Tasha, your host. Every week, I will read you an old story to help you relax, put the stressful day behind you, and drift off to sleep. Occasionally, we will run ads in order to cover the costs of the production of the podcast. Rest assured, there will be no ads during or after the story. If you prefer an ad-free and intro-free show, you can join Just Sleep Premium. Visit justsleeppodcast.com slash support for more information. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive in June. Olive in June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Tonight, I continue the story, The Yosemite, by John Muir. So lie down, close your eyes. And let me read you a story. Chapter 3 Snowstorms As has been already stated, the first of the great snowstorms that replenish the Yosemite fountains seldom sets in before the end of November. Then, warned by the sky, wide-awake mountaineers, together with the deer and most of the birds, 
make haste to the lowlands or foothills, and burrowing marmots, mountain beavers, wood rats, and other small mountain people go into winter quarters, some of them not again to see the light of day, until the general awakening and resurrection of the spring in June or July. The fertile clouds, drooping and condensing in brooding silence, seem to be thoughtfully examining the forests and streams with reference to the work that lies before them. At length, all their plans perfected, tufted flakes and single starry crystals come in sight, solemnly swirling and glinting to their blessed appointed places, and soon the busy throng fills the sky and makes darkness like night. The first heavy fall is usually from about two to four feet in depth. Then with intervals of days or weeks of bright weather, storm succeeds storm, heaping snow and snow until 30 to 50 feet has fallen. But on account of its settling and compacting and waste from melting and evaporation, the average depth actually found at any time seldom exceeds 10 feet in the forest regions or 15 feet along the slopes of the summit peaks. After snowstorms come avalanches, varying greatly in form, size, behavior, and in the songs they sing. Some on the smooth slopes of the mountains are short and broad, others long and river-like in the side canyons of Yosemites and in the main canyons, flowing in regular channels and booming like waterfalls, while countless smaller ones fall everywhere from laden trees and rocks and lofty canyon walls. Most delightful it is to stand in the middle of Yosemite on still clear mornings after snowstorms and watch the throng of avalanches as they come down, rejoicing to their places, whispering, thrilling like birds, or booming and roaring like thunder. The noble yellow pines stand hushed and motionless as if under a spell until the morning sunshine begins to sift through their laden spires. Then the dense masses on the ends of the leafy branches begin to shift and fall, those from the upper branches striking the lower ones in succession, enveloping each tree in a hollow conical avalanche of fairy fineness, while the relieved branches spring up and wave with startling effect in the general stillness, as if each tree was moving of its own volition. Hundreds of broad, cloud-shaped masses may also be seen, leaping over the brows of the cliffs from great heights, descending at first with regular avalanche speed until, worn into dust by friction, they float in front of the precipices like arist clouds. Those which descend from the brow of El Capitan are particularly fine, but most of the great Yosemite avalanches flow in regular channels like cascades and waterfalls. When the snow first gives way on the upper slopes of their basins, a dull, rushing, rumbling sound is heard, which rapidly increases and seems to draw nearer with appalling intensity of tone. Presently, the white flood comes bounding into sight over bosses and share places, leaping from bench to bench, spreading and narrowing and throwing off clouds of whirling dust like the spray of foaming cataracts. Compared with waterfalls and cascades, avalanches are short-lived, few of them lasting more than a minute or two, and the sharp clashing sounds so common in falling water are mostly wanting. But in their low, massy thundertones and purple-tinged whiteness, and in their dress, gait, gestures, and general behavior, they are much alike. Avalanches
Besides these common after-storm avalanches that are to be found not only in the Yosemite, but in all the deep, sheer-walled canyon of the range, there are two other important kinds, which may be called annual and century avalanches, which still further enrich the scenery. The only place about the valley where one may be sure to see the annual kind is on the north slope of Cloud's Rest. They are composed of heavy, compacted snow, which has been subjected to frequent alternations of freezing and thawing. They're developed in canyon and mountainsides at an elevation of from 9 to 10,000 feet, where the slopes are inclined at an angle too low to shed off the dry winter snow, and which accumulates until the spring thaws sap their foundations and make them slippery. Then away, in grand style, go the ponderous icy masses without any fine snow dust. Those of clouds rest descend like thunderbolts for more than a mile. The great century avalanches and the kind that mow wide swaths through the upper forests occur on mountainsides about 10 or 12,000 feet high, where under ordinary weather conditions, the snow accumulated from winter to winter lies at rest for many years, allowing trees 50 to 100 feet high to grow undisturbed on the slopes beneath them. On their way down, through the woods, they seldom fail to make a perfectly clean sweep, stripping off the soil as well as the trees, clearing paths two or three hundred yards wide from the timberline to the glacier, meadows, or lakes, and piling their uprooted trees head downward in rows along the sides of the gaps like lateral moraines. Scars and broken branches of the trees standing on the sides of the gaps record the depth of the overwhelming flood. And when we come to count the annual wood rings on the uprooted trees, we learn that some of these immense avalanches occur only once in a century, or even at still wider intervals. A Ride on an Avalanche Few Yosemite visitors ever see snow avalanches, and fewer still know the exhilaration of riding on them. In all my mountaineering, I have enjoyed only one avalanche ride, and the start was so sudden and the M came so soon, I had but little time to think of the danger that attends this sort of travel, though at such times one thinks fast. One fine Yosemite morning after a heavy snowfall, being eager to see as many avalanches as possible, and wide views of the forest and summit peaks in their new white robes before the sunshine had time to change them, I set out early to climb by a side canyon to the top of a commanding ridge a little over 3,000 feet above the valley. On account of the looseness of the snow that blocked the canyon, I knew the climb would require a long time, some three or four hours as I estimated, but it proved far more difficult than I had anticipated. Most of the way I sank waist deep, almost out of sight in some places. After spending the whole day to within half an hour or so of sundown, I was still several hundred feet below the summit. Then my hopes were reduced to getting up in time to see the sunset. But I was not to get summit views of any sort that day, for deep trampling near the canyon head, where the snow was drained, started an avalanche, and I was swished down to the foot of the canyon as if by enchantment. The wallowing ascent had taken nearly all day, the descent only about a minute. When the avalanche started, I threw myself on my back, and spread my arms to try to keep from sinking. Fortunately, through the grade of the canyon is very steep, 
It is not interrupted by precipices large enough to cause outbounding or free plunging. On no part of the rush was I buried. I was only moderately embedded on the surface, or at times a little below it, and covered with a veil of back-streaming dust particles. And as the whole mass beneath and about me joined in the flight, there was no friction, though I was tossed here and there and lurched from side to side. When the avalanche swedged and came to rest, I found myself on top of a crumpled pile without bruise or scar. This was a fine experience. Hawthorne says somewhere that steam has spiritualized travel, though unspiritual smells, smoke, etc. will attend steam travel. This flight, in what might be called a Milky Way of snow stars, was the most spiritual and exhilarating of all the modes of motion I've ever experienced. Elijah's flight in a chariot of fire could hardly have been more gloriously exciting. The Streams in Other Seasons In the spring, after the avalanches are down and the snow is melting fast, then all the Yosemite streams, from their fountains to their falls, sing their grandest songs. Countless rills make haste to the rivers, running and singing soon after sunrise, louder and louder with increasing volume until sundown. Then they gradually fail through the frosty hours of the night. In this way, the volume of the upper branches of the river is nearly doubled during the day, rising and falling as regularly as the tides of the sea. Then the Merced overflows its banks, flooding the meadows, sometimes almost from wall to wall in some places, beginning to rise towards sundown just when the streams and the fountains are beginning to diminish. The difference in time of the daily rise and fall being caused by the distance the upper flood streams have to travel before reaching the valley. In the warmest weather, they seem fairly to shout for joy and clash their upper leaping waters together like clapping of hands. Racing down the canyons with white manes, flying in glorious exuberance of strength, compelling huge, sleeping boulders to wake up and join in their dance and song to swell their exulting chorus. In early summer, after the flood season, the Yosemite streams are in their prime, running crystal clear, deep and full, but not overflowing their banks, about as deep through the night as the day, the difference in volume so marked in spring being now too slight to be noticed. Nearly all the weather is cloudless and everything is at its brightest, lake, river, garden, forest with all their life. Most of the plants are in full flower. The blessed oozles have built their mossy huts and are now singing their best songs with the streams. In tranquil, mellow autumn, when the year's work is about done and the fruits are ripe, birds and seeds out of their nests and all the landscape is glowing like a benevolent countenance, then the streams at their lowest ebb with scarce a memory left of their wild spring floods. The small tributaries that do not reach back to the lasting snow fountains of the mountain peaks shrink to whispering, tinkling currents. After the snow is gone from the basins, excepting occasional thundershowers, they are now fed only by small streams whose waters are mostly evaporated in passing over miles of warm pavements and in feeling their way slowly from pool to pool through the midst of the boulders and sand. Even the main rivers are so low they may easily be forded, and their grand falls and cascades, now gentle and approachable, have waned to sheets of embroidery.
Chapter 4 Snow Banners But it is on the mountaintops, when they are laden with loose, dry snow and swept by a gale from the north, that the most magnificent storm scenery is displayed. The peaks along the axis of the range are then decorated with resplendent banners, some of them more than a mile long, shining, streaming, waving with solemn, exuberant enthusiasm, as if celebrating some surpassingly glorious event. The snow of which these banners are made falls on the High Sierra in most extravagant abundance, sometimes to a depth of 15 or 20 feet, coming from the fertile clouds not in large angled flakes, such as one oftentimes sees in Yosemite, seldom even in complete crystals, for many of the starry blossoms fall before they are ripe. While most of these that attain perfect development as six-petaled flowers are more or less broken by glinting and chafing against one another on the way down to their work. This dry, frosty snow is prepared for the grand banner-waving celebrations by the action of the wind. Instead of at once finding rest like that which falls into the tranquil depths of the forest, it is shoved and rolled and beaten against boulders and outjutting rocks, swirled in pits and hollows like sand and river potholes, and ground into sparkling dust. And when storm winds find the snow dust in a loose condition on the slopes above the timberline, they toss it back into the sky and sweep it onward from peak to peak in the form of smooth, regular banners, when cloudy drifts according to the velocity and direction of the wind and the conformation of the slopes over which it is driven. While thus flying through the air, a small portion escapes from the mountains to the sky as vapor. But far the greater part is at length locked fast in bossy, overcurling cornices along the ridges or in stratified sheets in the glacier cirques, some of it to replenish the small residual glaciers and remain silent and rigid for centuries before it is finally melted and sent singing down home to the sea. But though snow dust and storm winds abound on the mountains, regular shapely banners are, for causes we shall presently see, seldom produced. During the five winters that I spent in Yosemite, I made many excursions to high points above the walls in all kinds of weather to see what was going on outside. From all my lofty outlooks, I saw only one banner storm that seemed in every way perfect. This was in the winter of 1873, when the snow-laden peaks were swept by a powerful norther. I was awakened early in the morning by a wild storm wind, and of course I had to make haste to the middle of the valley to enjoy it. Rugged torrents and avalanches from the main wind flood overhead were roaring down the side canyons and over the cliffs, arousing the rocks and the trees and the streams alike, and glorious hurrahing enthusiasm, shaking the whole valley into one huge song. Yet inconceivable as it must seem even to those who love all nature's wildness, the storm was telling its story on the mountains in still grander characters. A Wonderful Winter Scene I had long been anxious to study some points in the structure of the ice hill at the point of the upper Yosemite Fall, but as I have already explained, blinding spray had hitherto prevented me from getting sufficiently near it. This morning, the entire body of the fall was oftentimes torn into gauzy strips and blown horizontally along the face of the cliff, leaving the ice hill dry 
and while making my way to the top of Fern Ledge to see so favourable an opportunity to look down its throat, the peaks of the Merced group came in sight over the shoulder of the South Dome, each waving a white glowing banner against the dark blue sky. As regular in form and firm and fine in texture as if it were made of silk. So rare and splendid a picture, of course, smothered everything else, and I at once began to scramble and wallow up the snow-choked Indian Canyon to a ridge about 8,000 feet high, commanding a general view of the main summits along the axis of the range, feeling assured I should find them bannered still more gloriously. Nor was I in the least disappointed. I reached the top of the ridge in four or five hours, and through an opening in the woods the most imposing windstorm effect I ever beheld came full in sight. Unnumbered mountains rising sharply into the cloudless sky, their bases solid white, their sides plashed with snow, like ocean rocks with foam, and on every summit a magnificent silvery banner from 2,000 to 6,000 feet in length, slender at the point of attachment, and widening gradually until about 1,000 or 1,500 feet in breadth, and as shapely and as substantial looking in texture as the banners of the finest silk, all streaming and waving free and clear in the sun glow, with nothing to blur the sublime picture they made. Fancy yourself standing beside me on this Yosemite ridge. There's a great garish glitter in the air, and the gale drives wildly overhead, but you feel nothing of its violence, for you're looking out through a sheltered opening in the woods as through a window. In the immediate foreground, there's a forest of silver fir, the foliage warm yellow-green, and the snow beneath them, strewn with their plumes, plucked off by the storm, and beyond, broad, ridgy, canyon-furrowed, dome-dotted middle ground, darkened here and there with belts of pine. You behold the lofty, snow-leaden mountains in glorious array, waving their banners with jubilant enthusiasm, as if shouting aloud for joy. They are twenty miles away, but you would not wish them nearer, for every feature is distinct, and the whole wonderful show is seen in its right proportions, like a painting on the sky. And now, after this general view, mark how sharply the ribs and buttresses and summits of the mountains are defined, excepting the portions veiled by the banners, how gracefully and nobly the banners are waving in accord with the throbbing of the wind flood, how trimly each is attached to the very summit of its peak like a streamer at a masthead, how bright and glowing white they are, and how finely their fading fringes are penciled on the sky. See how solid, white, and opaque they are at the point of attachment, and how filmy and translucent toward the end, so that the parts of the peaks past, which they are streaming, look dim as if seen through a veil of ground glass. And see how some of the longest of the banners, on the highest peaks, are streaming perfectly free from peak to peak across intervening notches or passes, while others overlap and partly hide one another. As to their formation, we find that the main causes of the wondrous beauty and perfection of those we are looking at are the favorable direction and force of the wind, the abundance of snow dust, and the form of the north sides of the peaks. In general, the north sides are concave in both their horizontal and vertical sections, having been sculptured into this shape by the residual glaciers that lingered in the protecting northern shadows, while the sun-beating south sides, having never been subjected to this kind of glaciation, 
are convex or irregular. It is essential, therefore, not only that the wind should move with great velocity and steadiness to supply a sufficiently copious and continuous stream of snow dust, but that it should come from the north. No perfect banner is ever hung on the Sierra peaks by the south wind. Had the gale today blown from the south, leaving the other conditions unchanged, only swirling, interfering, cloudy drifts would have been produced. For the snow, instead of being spouted straight up and over the tops of the peaks and condensed currents to be drawn out as streamers, would have been driven over the convex southern slopes from peak to peak, like white pearly fog. It appears, therefore, that shadows, in great part, determine not only the forms of lofty ice mountains, but also those of the snow banners that the wild winds hang upon them. Earthquake Storms The avalanche taluses, leaning against the walls at intervals of a mile or two, are among the most striking and interesting of the secondary features of the valley. They are from about three to five hundred feet high, made up of huge, angular, well-preserved, unshifting boulders. And instead of being slowly weathered from the cliffs like ordinary taluses, they were all formed suddenly and simultaneously by a great earthquake that occurred at least three centuries ago. And though thus hurled into existence in a few seconds or minutes, they are the least changeable of all this year soil beds. Excepting those which were launched directly into the channels of swift rivers, Scarcely one of their wedged and interlacing boulders has moved since the day of their creation, and though mostly made up of huge blocks of granite, many of them from 10 to 50 feet cube, weighing thousands of tons with only a few small chips. Trees and shrubs make out to live and thrive on them, and even delicate herbaceous plants, draperia, colomia, zotinaria, etc., smoothing and colouring their wild, rugged slopes with gardens and groves. I was long in doubt on some points concerning the origin of those taluses. Plainly enough, they were derived from the cliffs above them, because they are of the size of scars on the walls, the rough, angular surface of which contrasts with the rounded, glaciated, unfractured parts. It was plain, too, that instead of being made up of materials slowly and gradually weathered from the cliffs, like ordinary taluses, Almost every one of them had been formed suddenly in a single avalanche and had not been increased in size during the last three or four centuries. For trees, three or four hundred years old were growing on them, some standing at the top close to the wall without a bruise or broken branch, showing that scarcely a single boulder had ever fallen among them. Furthermore, all these taluses throughout the range seemed by the trees and lichens growing on them to be of the same age. All the phenomena thus pointed straight to a grand ancient earthquake. But for years I left the question open and went from canyon to canyon, observing again and again, measuring the heights of taluses throughout the range on both flanks and the variations in the angles of their surface slopes, studying the way their boulders had been assorted and related and brought to rest, and their correspondence in size with the cleavage joints of the cliffs from whence they were derived, cautious about making up my mind. But at last, all doubt as to their formation vanished. At half past two o'clock of a moonlit morning in March, I was awakened by a tremendous earthquake. And though I had never before enjoyed a storm of this sort, 
the strange thrilling motion could not be mistaken. And I ran out of my cabin both glad and frightened, shouting, A noble earthquake! A noble earthquake! feeling sure I was going to learn something. The shocks were so violent and varied and succeeded one another so closely that I had to balance myself carefully in walking as if on the deck of a ship among waves, and it seemed impossible that the high cliffs of the valley could escape being shattered. In particular, I feared that the sheer-fronted sentinel rock towering above my cabin would be shaken down, and I took shelter back of a large yellow pine, hoping that it might protect me from at least the smaller outbounding boulders. For a minute or two, the shocks became more and more violent, flashing horizontal thrusts mixed with a few twists and battering explosive upheaving jokes, as if nature were wrecking her Yosemite temple and getting ready to build a still better one. I was now convinced, before a single boulder had fallen, that earthquakes were the talismakers and positive proof soon came. It was a calm, moonlight night, and no sound was heard for the first minute or two, save low, muffled, underground, bubbling rumblings, and the whispering and rustling of the agitated trees, as if nature were holding her breath. Then, suddenly, out of the strange silence and strange motion, there came a tremendous uproar. The eagle rock on the south wall, about half a mile up the valley, gave way, and I saw it falling in thousands of the great boulders I had so long been studying, pouring to the valley floor in a free curve luminous from friction, making a terribly sublime spectacle, an arc of glowing, passionate fire, 1,500 feet span, as true in form and as serene in beauty as a rainbow in the midst of this stupendous roaring rock storm. The sound was so tremendously deep and broad and earnest. The whole earth, like a living creature, seemed to have at last found a voice and to be calling to her sister planets. In trying to tell something of the size of this awful sound, it seems to me that if all the thunder of all the storms I had ever heard were condensed into one roar, it would not equal this rock roar at the birth of a mountain talus. Think then of the roar that arose to heaven at the simultaneous birth of all the thousands of ancient canyon taluses throughout the length and breadth of the range. The first severe shocks were soon over, and eager to examine the newborn talus, I ran up the valley in the moonlight and climbed upon it before the huge blocks after their fiery flight had come to complete rest. They were slowly settling in their places, chafing, grating against one another, groaning and whispering, but no motion was visible except in a stream of small fragments pattering down the face of the cliff. A cloud of dust particles, lighted by the moon, floated out across the whole breadth of the valley, forming a ceiling that lasted until after sunrise, and the air was filled with the odor of crushed Douglas spruces from a grove that had been mowed down and mashed like weeds. After the ground began to calm, I ran across the meadow to the river to see in what direction it was flowing, and was glad to find that down the valley was still down. Its waters were muddy from portions of its banks having given way, but it was flowing round its curves and over its ripples and shallows with ordinary tones and gestures. The mud would soon be cleared away, and the raw slips on the banks would be the only visible record of the shaking it suffered. The upper Yosemite Fall, glowing white in the moonlight, seemed to know nothing of the earthquake, manifesting no change in form or voice 
as far as I could see or hear. After a second startling shock, about half past three o'clock, the ground continued to tremble gently, and smooth, hollow rumbling sounds, not always distinguishable from the rounded, bumping, explosive tones of the falls, came from deep in the mountains in a northern direction. The few Indians fled from their huts to the middle of the valley, fearing that angry spirits were trying to kill them, and as I afterward learned, most of the Yosemite tribe, who were spending the winter at their village on Bull Creek, 40 miles away, were so terrified that they ran into the river and washed themselves. I asked Dick, one of the Indians with whom I was acquainted, what made the ground shake and jump so much. He only shook his head and said, no good, no good. In the morning, I found the few settlers assembled in front of the old Hutchings Hotel, comparing notes and meditating flight to the lowlands, seemingly as sorely frightened as the Indians. Shortly after sunrise, a low, blunt, muffled rumbling like distant thunder was followed by another series of shocks, which, though not nearly so severe as the first, made the cliffs and domes tremble like jelly, and the big pines and oaks thrill and swish and wave their branches with startling effect. Then the talkers were suddenly hushed, and the solemnity on their faces was sublime. One in particular of these winter neighbours, a somewhat speculative thinker with whom I had often conversed, was a firm believer in the cataclysmic origin of the valley. And I now jokingly remarked that his wild tumble-down and engulfment hypothesis might soon be proved, since these underground rumblings and shakings might be the forerunners of another Yosemite-making cataclysm, which would perhaps double the depth of the valley by swallowing the floor, leaving the ends of the roads and trails dangling three or four thousand feet in the air. Just then came the third series of shocks, and it was fine to see how awfully silent and solemn he became. His belief in the existence of a mysterious abyss into which the suspended floor of the valley and all the domes and battlements of the walls might at any moment go roaring down mightily troubled him. To diminish his fears and laugh him into something like reasonable faith, I said, come, cheer up, smile a little and clap your hands, now that kind Mother Earth is trotting us on her knee to amuse us and make us good. But the well-meant joke seemed irreverent and utterly failed, as if only prayerful terror could rightly belong to the wild beauty-making business. Even after all the heavier shocks were over, I could do nothing to reassure him. On the contrary, he handed me the keys of his little store to keep, saying that with a companion of like mind, he was going to the lowlands to stay until the fate of poor, trembling Yosemite was settled. In vain, I rallied them on their fears, calling attention to the strength of the granite walls of our valley home, the very best and solidest masonry in the world, and less likely to collapse and sink than the sedimentary lowlands to which they were looking for safety, and saying that in any case they sometime would have to die, and so grand a burial was not to be slighted. They were too seriously panic-stricken to get comfort from anything I could say. During the third severe shock, the trees were so violently shaken that the birds flew out with frightened cries. In particular, I noticed two robins flying in terror from a leafless oak, the branches of which swished and quivered as if struck by a heavy battering ram. 
exceedingly interesting were the flashing and quivering of the elastic needles of the pines in the sunlight and the waving up and down of the branches while the trunks stood rigid. There was no swaying, waving, or swirling as in windstorms, but quick, quivering jerks. And at times the heavy tasseled branches moved as if they had all been pressed down against the trunk and suddenly let go, to spring up and vibrate until they came to rest again. Only the owls seemed to be undisturbed. Before the rumbling echoes had died away, a hollow-voiced owl began to hoot in philosophical tranquility. From near the edge of the new talus, as if nothing extraordinary had happened, although perhaps he was curious to know what all the noise was about. His hoot-to-hoot-to-hoo might have meant, What's the stir, Kimmer? It was long before the valley found perfect rest. The rocks trembled more or less every day for over two months, and I kept a bucket of water on my table to learn what I could of the movements. The blunt thunder in the depths of the mountains was usually followed by sudden, jarring, horizontal thrusts from the northward, often succeeded by twisting, upjolting movements. More than a month after the first great shock, when I was standing on a fallen tree up the valley near Le Mans' winter cabin, I heard a distinct, bumbling thunder from the direction of Tenea Canyon Carlo, a large, intelligent St. Bernard dog standing beside me, seemed greatly astonished and looked intently in that direction with mouth open and uttered a low woof, as if saying, What's that? He must have known that it was not thunder, though like it. The air was perfectly still, not the faintest breath of wind perceptible, and a fine, mellow, sunny hush pervaded everything in the midst of which came that subterranean thunder. Then, while we gazed and listened, came the corresponding shocks, distinct as if some mighty hand had shaken the ground. After the sharp, horizontal jars died away, they were followed by a gentle rocking and undulating of the ground, so distinct that Carlo looked at the log on which he was standing to see who was shaking it. It was the season of flooded meadows and the pools about me, calm as sheets of glass, were suddenly thrown into low, ruffling waves. Judging by its effects, this Yosemite, or Inyo earthquake as it is sometimes called, was gentle as compared with the one that gave rise to the grand talus system of the range and did so much for the canyon scenery. Nature, usually so deliberate in her operations, then created, as we have seen, a new set of features simply by giving the mountains a shake, changing not only the high peaks and cliffs of the streams. As soon as these rock avalanches fell, the streams began to sing new songs, for in many places thousands of boulders were hurled into their channels, roughening and half-damming them, compelling the waters to surge and roar in rapids where before they glided smoothly. Some of the streams were completely dammed, driftwood, leaves, etc., gradually filling the interstices between the boulders, thus giving rise to lakes and level reaches, and these again, after being gradually filled in, were changed to meadows through which the streams were now silently meandering, while at the same time some of the taluses took the places of old meadows and groves. Thus rough places were made smooth and smooth places rough. But on the whole, by what at first sight seemed pure confounded confusion and ruin, the landscapes were enriched, 
for gradually every talus was covered with groves and gardens and made a finely proportioned and ornamental base for the cliffs. In this work of beauty, every boulder is prepared and measured and put in its place more thoughtfully than are the stones of temples. If for a moment you're inclined to regard these taluses as mere draggled, chaotic dumps, climb to the top of one of them and run down without any haggling, puttering hesitation, boldly jumping from boulder to boulder with even speed. You will then find your feet playing a tune and quickly discover the music and poetry of these magnificent rock piles. A fine lesson, and all nature's wildness tells the same story. The shocks and outbursts of earthquakes, volcanoes, geysers, roaring, thundering waves and floods, the silent uprush of sap in plants, storms of every sort. Each and all are the orderly, beauty-making love beats of nature's heart. Chapter 5 The Trees of the Valley The most influential of the valley trees is the yellow pine, Pinus ponderosa. It attains its noblest dimensions on beds of water-washed, coarsely stratified moraine material between the talus slopes and meadows, dry on the surface, well-watered below, and where not too closely assembled in groves, the branches reach nearly to the ground, forming grand spires 200 to 220 feet in height. The largest that I have measured is standing alone almost opposite the Sentinel Rock, or a little to the westward of it. It is a little over 8 feet in diameter and about 220 feet high. Climbing these grand trees, especially when they are waving and singing in worship in windstorms, is a glorious experience. Ascending from the lowest branch to the topmost is like stepping upstairs through a blaze of white light, every needle thrilling and shining as if with religious ecstasy. Unfortunately, there are but few sugar pines in the valley, though in the King's Yosemite there are in glorious abundance. The incense cedar, Libocedrus decurrens, with cinnamon-coloured bark and yellow-green foliage, is one of the most interesting of the Yosemite trees. Some of them are 100 feet high, from 6 to 10 feet in diameter, and they are never out of sight as you saunter among the yellow pines. Their bright brown shafts and towers of flat, frond-like branches make a striking feature of the landscapes throughout all the seasons. In midwinter, when most of the other trees are asleep, this cedar puts forth its flowers in millions. The pistillate, pale green and inconspicuous, but the staminate, bright yellow, tinging all the branches and making the trees as they stand in the snow look like gigantic goldenrods. The branches, outspread in flat plumes and beautifully fronded, sweep gracefully downward and outward, except those near the top, which aspire. The lowest, especially in youth and middle age, droop to the ground, overlapping one another, shedding off rain and snow like shingles, and making fine tents for birds and campers. This tree frequently lives more than a thousand years and is well worthy its place beside the great pines and the Douglas spruce. The two largest specimens I know of, the Douglas spruce, about eight feet in diameter, are growing at the foot of the Liberty Cap near the Nevada Fall and on the terminal moraine of the small residual glacier that lingered in the shady Alilouette Canyon. 
After the conifers, the most important of the Yosemite trees are the oaks, two species, the California live oak, Quercus agrifolia, with black trunks reaching a thickness of from four to nearly seven feet, wide-spreading branches and bright, deeply scalloped leaves. It occupies the greater part of the broad, sandy flats at the upper end of the valley and is the species that yields the acorn so highly prized by woodpeckers. The other species is the mountain live oak, or gold cup oak, Quercus chrysolipus, a sturdy mountaineer of a tree, growing mostly on the earthquake taluses and benches of the sunny north wall of the valley. In tough, unwedgeable, knotty strength, it is the oak of oaks, a magnificent tree. The largest and most picturesque specimen in the valley is near the foot of the Tenaya Fall, a romantic spot seldom seen on account of the rough trouble of getting to it. It is planted on three huge boulders and yet manages to draw sufficient moisture and food from this craggy soil to maintain itself in good health. It is 20 feet in circumference, measured above a large branch between 3 and 4 feet in diameter that is broken off. The main knotty trunk seems to be made up of craggy granite boulders like those on which it stands, being about the same colour as the mossy lichened boulders and about as rough. Two moss-lined caves near the ground open back into the trunk, one on the north side, the other on the west, forming picturesque romantic seats. The largest of the main branches is 18 feet and 9 inches in circumference, and some of the long pendulous branchlets droop over the stream at the foot of the fall, where it is grey with spray. The leaves are glossy yellow-green, ever in motion for the wind from the fall. It is a fine place to dream in, with falls, cascades, cool rocks lined with hypnum three inches thick, shaded with maple, dogwood, alder, willow, grand clumps of lady ferns where no hand may touch them, light filtering through translucent leaves, oaks fifty feet high, lilies eight feet high, and a filled lake basin nearby, and the finest libocetrus groves and tallest ferns and golden rods. In the main river canyon below the Vernal Fall, and on the shady south side of the valley, there are a few groves of the silver fir, A. B. Sconcolor, and superb forests of the magnificent species round the rim of the valley. On the tops of the domes is found the sturdy, storm-enduring red cedar, Juniperus occidentalis. It never makes anything like a forest hare, but stands out separate and independent in the wind clinging by slight joints to the rock, with scarce a handful of soil inside of it, seeming to depend chiefly on snow and air for nourishment, and yet it has maintained tough health on this diet for 2,000 years or more. The largest hereabouts are from 5 to 6 feet in diameter and 50 feet in height. The principal riverside trees are poplar, alder, willow, broad-leaved maple, and Natal's flowering dogwood. The poplar, Populus trichocarpa, often called palm of Gilead from the gum on its buds, is a tall tree, towering above its companions and gracefully embowering the banks of the river. Its abundant foliage turns bright yellow in the fall, and the Indian summer sunshine sifts through it in delightful tones over the slow, gliding waters when they're at their lowest ebb. Some of the involucres of the flowering dogwood 
measure six to eight inches in diameter, and the whole tree, when in flower, looks as if covered with snow. In the spring, when the streams are in flood, it is the whitest of trees. In Indian summer, the leaves become bright crimson, making a still grander show than the flowers. The broad-leaved maple and mountain maple are found mostly in the cool canyons at the head of the valley, spreading their branches in beautiful arches over the foaming streams. Scattered here and there are a few other trees, mostly small. The mountain mahogany, cherry, chestnut oak, and laurel. The California nutmeg, Taria californica, a handsome evergreen belonging to the yew tree, forms small groves near the Cascades a mile or two below the foot of the valley. Good night.